When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 Million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang, and today's episode is a conversation that our producer Mike Osborne had with Paige Chamberlain. Paige is a professor here at Stanford, and I've actually brought Mike into studio to help set it up because this is kind of a more personal interview than we usually have on Gen Anthro. Um, Often we talk about science, um, and sometimes we get into personal story, but this time I feel like it's really a combo of both. Uh, So, Mike, I want you to start just by explaining how you personally know Paige and how you guys met. Yeah, so... You know, I've never really talked much about it on Generation Anthropocene before, but my backstory is I came to Stanford to study paleoclimate, and Paige was a mentor, and he's a paleoclimatologist, I guess. I don't know if he'd call him. <laughs> what is that? Well, you're right. <laughs> Fair. Old weather? That I, yes, actually, that's pretty good. Uh, so paleoclimatology is just how, what are the natural cycles in the Earth climate system? Why do we go into and out of ice ages? And on really long timescales, what governs the the climate of the earth. And all of that information is important for understanding what we're doing on top of that with global warming. It's kind of how we tune and calibrate some of the climate models. So How you get a baseline. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And baseline understanding of the climate system. So Paige studies that and he has been a mentor to me. Uh, really kind of as soon as I arrived on campus, he was somebody who I developed a friendship with. He's somebody who I looked up to. And he's kind of like an old school field geologist. He's traveled all over the world. He's been in the field a ton. He's got some really cool stories. He's also just a fantastic teacher and a really charismatic guy. I mean, he's a lot of fun to chat with Yeah, and a hell of a storyteller. Yeah, he's definitely a really good storyteller. I mean, we like run into him on campus occasionally and he just has this aura like he should be in the outdoors. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, he looks like he was built for it. Uh, And he's somebody who I've always kind of felt was a kindred spirit. Like, I totally connect with the man, and he's a blast to be around. He's also a musician. He's had uh, an incredible career in the sciences. And that's actually the other reason I really wanted to have him on the show, is that this is not a man who gets interviewed a lot. He doesn't have a lot of media appearances, um, and he's just sort of not about that. On the other hand, he has had a profound influence on me. And I would say, more broadly, he's had a profound influence even if indirect, in shaping Generation Anthropocene as as a podcast, as a project. And I mean, his voice is in the intro. And his voice is in the intro. <laughs> yeah, so when we go through the time segments, the 4.6 billion, that's Paige Chamberlain's voice. All right, uh, should we get to it? I think that's enough of an intro. Yeah, let's get to it. All right. 
So I'm Paige Chamberlain, and I'm a professor of uh, Earth System Sciences at Stanford University. And what do you do? Do I have to answer that seriously? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of uh, my research is I'm interested in broad questions about what's called Earth system history. And that's basically how the Earth system behaves in the past, hopefully as a predictor of what it might do in the future. Um, I'll give you one fact that I think is absolutely fascinating. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's underestimated how important this fact is. And that is that you've had liquid water on the planet for 4 billion years. That means that the, overall, the state of the Earth has stayed within 100 degrees for 4 billion years. That's essentially impossible. <laughs> the swings in temperature on most planets are way beyond that. So the fact that you've done that means you've had this really highly tuned system that's evolved and continues to evolve um, to regulate itself, in a sense. And, and that regulation is very coupled to how the, how the Earth behaves as a planet in terms of its rocks and how as atmosphere has evolved and how the bi biology has evolved as well. So what my group is really interested in is asking questions about that system. And it's very complex. So you get to see pieces of it. And hopefully by assembling enough pieces of that, you can start to understand why this is such a unique planet. Pieces from the past, you mean? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, th that's interesting. When you frame it that way, it's sort of like water is like a buffer or, or a kind of temperature buffer, right? Like it, it, it it's... I mean, we forget, right, how much of the planet is water in all three forms mm -hmm. um, and how that, you know, I don't know. We, we, If you just put that much water on any planet, then all of a sudden you're talking about a much smaller sort of temperature envelope in a way. In part, in part that, that is true, in part. The, the ocean plays a big role in the water buffering this. But also, it's also telling you something about the history of the planet is that it's for some reason can sit at this 100-degree window for 4 billion years. That's just that, you know, it's, there's a lot of things that go into that, but, um, but it's just that fact to me is just the most fascinating thing. Yeah. It, you know, it came close a couple of times to freezing over, but we got out of it. Yeah. Right. Well, there's, there's still a couple of puddles. Yeah. This <laughs> is like snowball earth stuff. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, it, it actually, the, the word earth system, I mean, you know, it's like, I, I'm interested in, um, the earth system. What does that mean? Oh, that's that's a good that that you know that's a new a new thing, right? Yeah, people wouldn't <laughs> right. say I studied the Earth system no, no, you know, fifteen I, years ago. Absolutely not. In fact, when I was in graduate school, that that, that word didn't exist at all. Um, we were Earth scientists, but system. I think it's a good way to look at it. You're you're not looking at one component. So, you're, for example, you're not just looking at a rock, or you're not just looking at a plant. You're trying to couple to see what the interactions between things are. Uh, which which has which has really great benefits in some ways in that you're asking questions and how these things interact. The the difficulty thing is it's sort of the imposter syndrome. Like you've been trained in one thing and you're having to reach across fields. So some people are very reluctant to do that kind of thing. So you're not going down a, a rabbit hole and you're not sitting in your silo. You're stepping out of it. Um, and there's and that's not why we were trained as PhD students at all. So when did you start calling yourself an Earth System scientist? When it became sexy. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> when I got a new jacket, I got my nose hairs clipped and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. No, I think uh, when I started to realize that, that for me, the interesting questions were on the edges of fields. Hmm. And I had uh, enough experience at that point and 
was established enough where I could do things that were a little bit out of the ordinary. How did you get established? I mean, what was your early career, you know, like what, I don't know, what put you on the map? I know you, have, uh, if I'm remembering things right, you were in the Coast Guard for a little bit. And so you didn't get to graduate school until a little bit later than some people, right? Yeah, that, that is why I'm ancient at this point. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so I'm trying I was four, to justify I've always age. been four years behind anyway. Yeah, um, I can relate. Uh, so uh, when I went off to graduate school, I had very different interests. There are some similarities, but uh, when you're looking at your your early 20s, mid-20s, and you're like, what am I going to be? I just always liked mountains. I mean, that's really the level of sophistication I had. I just liked mountains, so I wanted to study them. So I went to uh, Dartmouth for a a master's degree and Harvard for a PhD. And as, as I was in those programs, I progressed more and more into finding new things. And at that point, they still had mountains around them, so I worked in the Appalachians and that sort of thing. Um, but I was very interested in chemistry and particularly physical chemistry. And, and, and for some reason, that clicked for me. So I went in that direction. Well, I, I guess I want to try and build up to the moment where sort of, you know, this sort of integrated earth system, interdisciplinary, whatever. I mean, I know those are kind of buzzwords, but they're they're real and they're relevant. And that's been the tra- trajectory of your career. So, I mean, you know, originally you are a geologist who wants to be in the mountains. That's correct. And uh, even now I still work in the mountains because yeah. I still like them. Yeah. Uh, the first things I published on were actually the, the origin of metamorphic rocks and how heat was transferred from the mantle to the crust and that sort of thing. That, okay. was, that was my shtick. And, and that's where I got tenure based on that. Hard but, rock geology. Right. And the, the first venture out of that was quite bizarre. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> what was the first venture out of it? Um, bird migration. And Whoa. so, so I, I built had built a stable isotope lab, and um, at that time, so stable isotopes are isotopes that don't decay, and we all have them: carbon, and oxygen, and that sort of stuff. Um, and I was at a cocktail party with some biologists, and was just talking to uh, a biologist named Dick Holmes, who studies warblers. And I said, we, I was talking to him with a friend of mine, Joel Bloom, who's a professor at Michigan, and we said, you know, what do you do? And they said, well, we we follow these birds around and we try to see where they migrate, but they're too small. You can't put trackers on them. You can't do this. So we don't really know where they, where one population goes and all that sort of stuff. So it sounds I, like you follow birds around, but yeah, not very well. We, we can do this with isotopes. <laughs> oh. So uh, I teamed up with some people at the Smithsonian and went through a collection and built uh, uh, a method to track bird migration, which is now what everybody uses. And so that that was a big jump from uh, granites to birds is a big one. Yeah, that's a big so jump. So then I, I could back up. But it, it was a very successful project, and uh, it's used all the time now. So that was my first venture out. And so just by looking at the isotopes of feathers, you can kind of figure mm-hmm. out where birds are flying around sure. to? So like if a, a bird is living in uh, Florida and puts a feather on there, molts, puts a feather on there, and flies up to Canada, the isotope values of hydrogen are very different than they are in Canada. So you can look at the feather, take the hydrogen out, and go, oh, this is a bird from this area of the United States, if you know what the, how the water behaves. And the great thing is that birds don't drink bottled water, or it wouldn't work, right? If they stopped in at 7-Eleven and got a bottle of water, it would mess the whole thing up. Right. But birds aren't that good at opening caps. Yeah, well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. So and so, the Smithsonian had some big collection. You could dive into all these oh, old yeah. collections of birds and, yeah. and, and feathers, and yeah, start they had to an enormous collection of black-throated blue warblers, which oh. are a really cool little bird. And uh, so we used that as the type example of doing this thing and developed it for that. But it applies across species. So, 
All right. Well, if you jump from sort of hard rock geology to birds, I mean, what's next after that? So after that, then then I, I read some papers by uh, actually one of my old advisors, a guy named Phil England, who's a professor at Oxford, geophysicist, and he still around. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, they were trying to figure out how you could get at topography of the Earth. And that turns out to be very important, the size of mountains, for lots of questions like global climate questions, tectonic questions, all kinds of things like that. But we should was, clarify. We're talking about topography in the past, right? We know past. how big the mountains right. are oh, now. Yeah, yeah. You, you can do a pretty good job with it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in the past. And so there was no way to do this. And it actually is very similar to the bird research. So have, knowing something about isotopes, I went, well, you know – as a cloud hits a mountain range and rises orographically over the range, it rains out the heavier isotopes, uh, the heavier water first, the ones with O18s and deuterium and rich stuff first, and then it gradually gets less and less till you cross the mountain. And that's very much correlated with the height of the mountain. So we developed some empirical relationships that said, oh, this should work, and then applied them, and that became stabilized to a paleo-altimetry. So uh – I think a lot of people probably struggle to know what kind of timescales we're talking about when you're talking about mountain building. I mean, so is that tens of thousands? Is that hundreds of millions? It's tens of millions. Tens of millions of yep. years. Okay. Yep. And so so you develop a technique that allows you to help figure out how tall certain mountain ranges were in the past? That's exactly right. So that you could then take, let's say, 50 million years ago, or were the Rockies there or were they not there? Those are questions people... Some people thought the Rockies started in the last 10 million years. Some people had a 50. That's a big number. Yeah. 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 Right? So when, when did the Rockies start? About 50 million years ago. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, interesting enough, the formation of those, it's not just a fascinating question, but it influences global climate. And it's actually one of the, the Rockies are one of the reasons that, for example, Europe is, is, is temperate. Well, okay. I was going to say let's get back to that, but now I don't want to get back to that. How, how, why did the Rockies' existence matter? For because temper- basically everything's flowing right west-east around the northern hemisphere. and Air, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so when the big storms hit the Rockies – now, this is not my idea. In fact, this is uh, some people who did some modeling down at Columbia. Anyway, they, um, they pointed out that as these large storms hit the Rockies, they rise up and they compress against the – troposphere, so they become spinning along like a disc, and the disc widens out and flattens out, just like a ballerina, right? Top of the atmosphere. Right, top of the atmosphere. And so, you know, they'll slow down. In order to preserve angular momentum in a spinning Earth, they then the storm tracks move south, they pick up um, moisture around Florida and the Gulf, and then swing north to keep the, the angular momentum conserved, and then hit Europe. And that's what actually is bringing a lot of the heat to Europe. So Europe's climate is influenced by things like Rockies an ocean away. And this is true across all the large mountain ranges. So to understand how climate behaves, you have to understand what the lower boundary condition is essentially on the Earth's surface. Yeah. Um, well, actually, so let's keep marching through your career. So you get you get to some of the paleoaltimetry work. And that, I mean, you still are doing a lot of that. But that actually, I mean, at that point, I feel like you're really starting to bleed into the Earth systems concept, the idea of working with a biological component, a climate component, a hydrosphere, mountains, everything, right? Right. Um, so I think I actually just want to spend most of the rest of the time talking about paleoclimate. So, I mean, you'd call yourself a paleoclimatologist, sure. Sure, if you want to. I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do, yeah. Um, yeah. How far back in time do you go? 
Um, in terms days. of where I work in, yeah. uh, most of we, I go back uh, working on some problems that are, you know, 70, 80 million years ago, but that's not the main thing. The, uh, my fast, I have a real fascination with the, what's called the Cenozoic and that's from 65 million years to now. Dinosaurs to now. And dinosaurs to now. So it's, it's the age of the mammals. And, um, I had a lot of people say, wow, why do you work on the Cenozoic? It's so boring. <laughs> like to me, the reason it's fascinating is that there are much better rock records in the younger ages than the older ones. So you can get more out of them. Um, and you can ask different kinds of questions. And then the second thing is that I'm particularly fascinated by that period of time is that we know a lot about the climate states during this time. And there were times in the Cenozoic when the CO2 level was four or five times higher than it is now. So those are states of the earth that are very similar, let's say, geographically in their mountain ranges and all that sort of stuff as today, but much higher CO2 levels. So it's a way to look at climate by looking backwards. If we were to describe the climate system over the last 80 million years and we were to do it as a straight line and then we were to do it as a more complicated line, um, you know, what what is the sort of general pattern? What's the general Easy. story? That, that's a good one. Okay. So there's two states. <clears throat> They're essentially a hot state of the earth uh, when, let's say, something like Denver had a climate like Mexico City today. And then there's a cold state of the earth, which is now. And that happens, that transition happens at around 35 million years ago. So if you go past older than 35, it's, you think, just warm, temperate Earth with, with some very large swings to the climate in that warm state. And then we just drop down to this um, colder state, and now we're in that. But, but now we're put our CO2, our current CO2 levels are pushing back to get us to that hothouse. They aren't there yet. They're more like about 5 million years ago. But if we triple them, then we're in the, the hothouse state. We're, we're back as Denver right. as Mexico. So when I when I study the stuff in Mesozoic, I'm studying the extreme hot states and what happens. And That's a trippy world. Yeah, it's a really weird world. Yeah, it's I mean, really weird. So like, okay, let's let's go back there, right? I mean, I, I think you've you've actually gone through the exercise of closing your eyes and trying to picture what it was like. Mm-hmm. Was it's it cool. Like? Yeah, was it like? Well, it's not cool. It's hot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did what did it look like? I, yeah. So uh, just to go back to the Eocene, let's, let's start. Let's do the dinosaur one later. Okay. What's the Eocene? It's, the Eocene's fifty million years, fifty-five. Okay. Like so that. really hot. And it's hot. And so if you were here, you you first of all you go to the shoreline of in California, and it would be lapping up against the Sierras, and then you would climb up essentially a jungle, through a jungle with these weird, crazy mammals that would be kind of fun to hang out with. And then you walk across a plateau. It's a jungle, right? It's not it's not a desert thing or anything like that. And so it would have been so cool to go back there. And, you know, it, i kind of like to do it if there was a time machine. Now that Cretaceous, I'd like to go back again because same sort of thing. It's hot, interesting area. But there you get dinosaurs that are going to eat you. And I, I'll skip that unless I'm <laughs> hev- heavily armed, maybe. <laughs> which, which obviously you wouldn't get in a time machine without being prepared. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's Eocene. Is, are the Sierras there in, in the uh, in the Eocene? Um, yes. What are they? Are they are they as big as they are today? Um, probably yes. Um, so. This was actually one of the big questions. When, when, in fact, when I first arrived at Stanford, the, the Stanford camp was, Sarah's came up in the last 10 million years. Um, so I teamed up with um, a very good sedimentologist, Steve Graham, who uh, 
um, said, hey, you know, we can we can figure this out because if you if you look, there's old river channels. This is where the gold came from. Um, that and you can see that. So if you drive up I-80 and there you go by Gold Bar or something like that, and there's a um, rest stop and there's red rocks there. That's those are old river channels that were coming off the Sierra. So I said, oh, we can use the isotopes. We can go up these old river channels, collect the clay sediments out of there, the equilibrated that Eocene water, and see if they follow a topographic gradient. And sure enough, they did. So they they were high in the Eocene. Um, they were probably equally high even back into the Cretaceous. Um, and they, they formed a platform, though. That you, they were a ramp up to a, a Tibetan plateau-like platform. Um, and what's made them look like mountains is the back half the east side has fallen down. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, yeah, you yeah. can make a mountain two ways. You can put it up or you can take something down. Right, right, Still right. Still makes right. a mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't believe that that recently we didn't know how old the Sierras were. No, this was only half a dozen years ago. I mean, are there questions about other major mountain ranges whose ages we don't know almost, still? Al- almost all of them. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, it seems like a technique that you've now pioneered that people ought to be able to apply it with. I mean, is it a matter of finding the right samples or just having the money to do it? Uh I think it's finding the right samples and, you know, you got to get enough people out there debating science and that kind of stuff. But, you know, we know now a fair amount about the Andes, North, Western North America, Tibetan area. Alps? No. Nothing about the European Alps. Almost nothing, surprisingly wow. enough. Yeah. Haven't you done some work there? Uh, that's my big plan. I really like uh, sitting in, you know, cafes and... Yeah, I think I might work in <laughs> Europe. <laughs> well, there's the science there, too. But oh, of course. Great. Absolutely, of course. Well, and discussing science. The cappuccino is to die for, though. <laughs> um, so, okay, w- what parts of the Cenozoic climate are you interested in and why? I mean, you're looking for these analogies of where we may be heading today with with rapid rise of greenhouse gases. But, um, you know, what, what are the other analogies or what else is interesting or what else is trippy? Oh, yeah. Well, there, here's a good one. So... Some of our research right now, or my graduate students, one particular Dan Ibarra, we're interested in what the hydrology, the the basically how much water was around in Western U.S. during periods of particularly high CO2, and CO2 that's about what we are today. So we're around 400 ppm CO2. It turns out that uh, five million years ago, that we're about the same amount of CO2, this elevated CO2 that we have. So what we're studying is fossil lakes. And here's, a, here's an interesting thing. If you look at the GCM models, and everybody follows the news and that stuff about extreme drought in western U.S., and they point to climate change causing that. Well, if you go back in, at, at the times we had this amount of CO2, it was wet. It wasn't dry. Southwest was wet. First order observation, there were lakes. That's just a first-order observation. It was a big, wet area. So why, if we're saying that climate models are going to say this is all this drought coming, why was it fundamentally different in the past with the same high CO2 values? And where is Dan getting the samples? Uh, There are all kinds of fossil lakes through southern Nevada in Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, All this area seems to have been very wet, wet enough to basically make lakes. Um, same kind of boundary conditions, same ocean circulation things, everything's the same. So something's wrong. Either we're missing something key that we or, or there's something wrong with the models, but then and believe it, the two communities are not talking. And we think it has to do basically with more like a permanent El Nino state. 
so that you're getting a lot of water coming in uh, during essentially El Nino things and, and raining. Um, but if we're making policy, right, based on model world, then we should also be evaluating paleoclimate world and decide, is, are we really going the right direction? Yeah. So, I mean, my my understanding at just sort of a first pass of the quality of the climate models is that they're getting better and better at regional temperature patterns, um, but that precipitation remains something that's very hard to, to get right, especially in the mid-latitudes. Completely agree. But paleoclimate model, people like us, should be talking to the GCM people going, what's wrong? And they're not talking to you? We're not. It's not that we don't like each other. We're in the same department. Um, but it's just, you know, communities have a tendency to not talk enough. I mean, actually, I really love that you're kind of an advancing a research agenda in this conversation. Because, I, I mean, one, you're saying the paleoclimate people need to be talking to the global climate modelers who are projecting the future overall more. And I think that actually has been a long-recognized problem. And there is some conversation between the two communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be a lot better. That's point number one. Mm -hmm. And then point number two is really about this, like, are we thinking about plants and the role of the hydrologic cycle to the level we should and can be? Uh, I think it's a question worth examining. It really is. You know, you need to get good plant people in the room and you need isotope people in the room and you need modelers in the room. Um, And these are just kind of fun questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. Maybe maybe the earth doesn't care what kind of plants on top of it. Hard for me to imagine when they're the valves to our atmosphere. No, I mean, I, I, I think that, like, there's a lot of fear out there about global warming as there should be, right? And uh, certainly, uh, you know, there's when we think about the climate, it's mostly temperature and precipitation, right? And there's some other variables that matter. How windy is it? And mm-hmm. what's the humidity of the air and so on and so forth. But in terms of like, how do we plan for this hotter world that we seem to be heading for inevitably? Um, we'd like to be able to get rain right. And you, you would, in, in particular, because you want to get information about where you're going to plant crops. Yeah, yeah, right. for just one reason among many. But Think about a- it. If you're a businessman and you go, look, the models all say that we should be – let's buy up a lot buy up a lot of land in Canada. Well, suppose you get it wrong, right? And suppose actually it's going to get drier than the place where it's actually going to get wetter. I mean, you know, so I don't know if we're right for, about the Western U.S. or the GCM model ones are right. I, no one's going to know that answer. But you should – if you were going to be a businessman, you'd want to know the risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I don't know. We should maybe talk about the Anthropocene? Sure. Do you want to? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what should we talk about? I don't know. It's – It's it's a thing? It's, your, it's a thing. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the important uh, element of the Anthropocene as a term, regardless of what the geologists decide in terms of new geologic boundaries, is the statement of human impact on the planet. Which, which I think is a really deep and philosophical kind of problem, because on one hand, we are elevating humans above all other, other organisms uh, in a way that says we're a geologic force, and for the most part, the rest of life is not, um, or not in the way that we as a singular species are, and that there's a hubris to that. On the other hand, there's a lot of validity to, to, to that statement. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you into studio was to kind of trip out on deep time and just talk about the long time scales of Earth and evolution and, and life on the planet. And and I guess hear your perspective on this current moment. I mean, are we a hubristic generation to uh, to be elevating ourselves to the status of geologic forces? 
I actually agree with that statement, uh, but you have to remember we're very much in a minority in that view that uh, humans see them somehow essentially separate from the system. Um, and I, I don't really um, understand why that is so. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's something very peculiar about our species. For example, having worked in this area, I really would, I prefer to think of myself as part of a system. And, you know, there's a lot of us who think that way. But, you know, even the department I'm in defines it itself as human impacts, not really in terms of a, even though we're called our systems, the, the underlying theme is human impacts. And what are the impacts on our agriculture? Or what's the impacts? On, and, you know, my view would be we might want to step back and say, well, let's, aren't we just part of this whole program? But that's more of a philosophical thing, almost almost has undertones of religion stuff for me to this kind of thing. And I think if we had that feeling about it, we might treat our Earth quite differently. I am always struck when I fly <laughs> occasionally. Um, when you're, So you're flying at the top of our livable atmosphere, the troposphere, and you look down, you realize, really, that's that's the livable atmosphere? And then you, as you fly across all these areas, there are just people everywhere, everywhere, everywhere you go. And you can just see all the emissions coming out and you go, holy moly, we, what are we doing here? We've got to slow down. And if you don't place us in such a high priority, um, you, you can start to think, well, look, maybe we should slow down. And so it's a hard thing to reconcile. Well, I mean, actually, that really links up to me with the study of deep time in that there is a, I mean, there's an awe factor to it, right? There's a deep humility. It's looking up into the stars, mm -hmm. except looking back in time, right? Where, where you, you see both the smallness of the moment um, and the insanity of it. Um, so I, 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 I just, I feel like we can't like sort of get enough of that. Uh, wow. It's old. Wow. It's old kind of, mm -hmm. you know, perspective. We aren't the first species to change the climate. No, I know. I know that I know that they did it back in the pre-Cambrian. Oh yeah, but it we're very different. Well, in terms different. of our intention and control and our ability to perceived ability to self-regulate whether or not yeah. we do it. Right? Yeah. Um, Paige Chamberlain, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for coming in. I'm glad we finally did it. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Generation Anthropocene is Miles Treyer, Mike Osborne, and me, Leslie Chang. Our intern is Isha Salian. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. Thanks for listening. All right. All right. Let's do this. Okay. Hang on. Sorry. Okay, okay. Ooh. Okay, now I'm <laughs> <laughs> Get the last dregs of that coffee there. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.